This is the coolest show on climate change. Brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. hopeful because of the past you know I if we could make it through slavery and I don't know if, if it's possible for us to imagine the pain and suffering that our ancestors went through but we made it through that and we made it through Jim Crow and, and we're making it through your president we're making it through him then I'm certain we can make it through this that is Dr. Beverly L. Wright, founder and executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. She's a scholar and advocate, author, civic leader, and one of the most influential people in the climate movement. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of the coolest show on climate change. I'm a little late getting on, but you'll be putting out another fire as usual. Fires never seem never to go away. While you're putting out one, another brush fire is brewing, if you know what I mean. And then you, it's a big thing after that. Well, let's get let's get right to it. I mean, so let me just okay. let me just say, uh, well, welcome. Um, thank you for being you. on. And this show is exciting to me for so many levels. I can say without a doubt, I will never interview another guest who has known me since the day I was born. <laughs> I will, that this, this, there will not be another guest that I'm going to talk to. I, will say, I don't care who else in the climate movement. I don't care if you in the, I don't care if you in the Earth movement or the Mars movement. It's not gonna it's not gonna matter. I am not going to interview somebody who has known but so but but before we get we're gonna leave the folks hanging. We we're gonna come back to that. Leave them hanging, yeah. We're gonna leave them hanging. <laughs> yeah, so I, it's a pleasure to be on the show with you. I know you've made several other attempts and um I've always been just ripping and running and responding you know, to community needs, and it just never goes away. It was happening before Katrina, fighting um, the Mississippi River, Gulf Coast, um, fighting in the Mississippi River, Gulf Coast area, that 85-mile stretch of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that's called Cancer Alley. That's where I got my start. And I have, I can tell you that journey has not ended. It was interrupted by Katrina and the impacts of Katrina are continuing. That was followed by BP and we're struggling right now to make certain that funds that were really um, put in place to help the people most affected by BP and the communities most affected by BP are being you know, sidelined again. And of course, the wealthy, the well-to-do, the uh, white people are absolutely getting the majority of the money and they're becoming richer while the impacted communities are reaping almost nothing from it. And that goes from research, the areas of monies for research to actually actual building projects. It's the same fight. And I believe, you know, systemic racism is just there. And we are constantly fighting our way out. And I have been saying this over and over again, Rev, without reparations, we will never, we will never get on top. We have tried everything. We fight everything. And every time there's another calamity or catastrophe, um, whatever the, the ailment is, we end up at the bottom of it. And I feel like we're being pushed further and further under. We keep fighting to get on top and something happens and we're back at, you know, stage one. 
And um, I wish I could hear more young people talking about reparations. Um, they say it's a radical thing, but if I'm 72 years old, how radical is that? To me, young people ought to be pushing for more than that. I mean, really, you know, talking about payment for all of the pain and suffering, you know, that we have gone through and will continue to go through. This is the beginning, I believe, of a pandemic era, as was predicted by the climate scientists, you know, that there would be uh, these um, virulent kinds of diseases that would be difficult for us to fight. It is upon us. And we can expect that this will not be the last one. This particular pandemic attacks health issues that are prevalent in African-American communities and other people of color because of where they live and the, and the close proximity with, which, within which they live to polluting facilities. So air pollution, what we have been fighting for so long, toxic air pollution, that causes every ailment from respiratory diseases to, to heart disease to diabetes is connected to all of that. You know, or, or, or the kinds of diseases that this particular virus seeks out. And when it finds it, it lodges deep within our lungs and we end up mostly not surviving. It's, it's, it's interesting that PM 2.5 is the vehicle that this particular virus uses to go deep into our lungs and, and causes us to expire or affects heart disease in different ways. So this is um, this could have us on a path to genocide. Um, that's another word that people are afraid to use. I don't, I'm not sure. We we what we need to do is to fight against it because if you have a disease, it's mostly attacking and wiping us out in large numbers. Um, we're 13% in the United States and in different places, we're 50% of the deaths. Louisiana, we're like 32% of the population and we're over 50% of the deaths. This, this is the newest, latest and greatest concern for African-Americans in this struggle to survive um, on this planet with um, systemic racism. So I just got to say, whoo-wee. This is for, <laughs> so for all you young folks listening, you want to know how the older generation does it. Listen, so let me get to my first question. <laughs> okay. I had to get that off my chest, Rev. And I have a lot more on my chest, too. So for the folks who are listening across the country and are checking in right now, who is Dr. Beverly L. Wright? Oh, my God. Is that a question for me? <laughs> well, you know, um, I was born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, in the old seven ward, as it was called, where we did not pronounce the TH sound. We sound like immigrants when we spoke because of the influence of the French and Spanish language. So I grew up in an old, very old uh, community, uh, African-American community that, that believed in self-determination to the extent that that was possible. And they produced me and a bunch of other warriors. But I also attended Grambling State University, which is an HBCU, that's a historically black college or university. Um, I understand now they're using predominantly white universities, but PWIs, P, predominantly white institutions. So it is the opposite of what a predominantly white institution is. It was organized, um, developed, nurtured, cared for by African-Americans uh, some of whom uh, were born during slavery, but uh, during a time when, when Black people were not allowed to be taught, and their main goal was to make certain that we were afforded the opportunity to not just read and write, but to attain 
as they called it, higher learning. Uh, so I'm a product of the 60s. You know, I graduated from Grambling in 69. So I lived through uh, segregation. Um, it changed while I was a teenager, but it was a fight. The law was changed, but the behavior had not. So I lived through the death of Martin Luther King, the death of Malcolm X, the death, death of Medgar Evers. I listened to Fannie Lou Hamer, you name it. These, All of these people influenced who I am today uh, and who I am still convinced that um, we probably have a better understanding of who white people are than, than what they know of themselves. They don't even know who they are, but we do because we lived under their tyranny for all these years and it is continuing. So I am the mother of two beautiful daughters, both of whom attended Spelman College. That was a must in my house. If, if I was paying for it, you were going to an HBCU. After that, you could go anywhere in the world you wanted to go with white folks. Anywhere, any school you wanted to go to, but that initial education had to be grounded uh, in an HBCU where I believe that these schools teach you to care about your people and to give back. That was my main motivation. I did not believe they could learn that at a predominantly white institution, but I knew that they would, and Spelman did not disappoint me. That's the best money I spent sending them to an HBCU and an all-girls college at that, which produces another type of African-American woman and one that we could all be proud of, as they all do. Uh, I am the founding director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. We will be uh, in business 30 years next year. So we've been up and running for 29 years. That in itself is phenomenal for a small nonprofit, especially doing the kind of work that we do, surviving and growing, by the way. So I'm a lot of other things to a lot of other people. Probably uh, some people don't think of me as highly as I think of myself, but that's okay. You know, I am who I am, and by the grace of God, I've been able to do what I absolutely love doing and get a paycheck for it. So I would do this for free, and I we, and believe me, we do a lot of stuff for free, but I don't complain because I have a salary that comes. It's not the biggest salary, but it is a salary, and I'm so grateful you know, that I can continue doing this work that I love, and I love Black people unapologetically. I heard someone say that one time. I think that's a good way to describe me unapologetically in love with Black people and wish that we all get to a point where we love ourselves as much, all Black people love themselves as much as I love them. So that is, um, in a nutshell, who I am. Well, that is phenomenal. But well, we thank you. You are like the dean, the grandmother, the godmother of our movement. And you mean so much to so many young people, so many young kind of warriors who are now coming up. But let's just get to some of the, the basics of this movement. Um, one, when you talk about a fight for energy future that is equitable, renewable, and sustainable, what do you mean by that? Well, for one thing, um, the fight is, to some extent, uh, a fight that we've been in for a long time, even when we didn't know we were in it. And what I mean by that is when we look at the statistics that basically show that African-Americans in particular, but people of color in general, live closer to polluting facilities than any, than any other groups and their white counterparts. But specifically, they live near petrochemical uh, facilities. My center started out fighting petrochemical facilities and the toxic pollution that they spew out by the million tons that have been killing our communities for decades. 
Later finding out that making that connection, and I need to say this, it was environmental justice communities who made the connection first between climate change and climate justice and the petrochemical, the large petrochemical complex that we live with. And so pulling this all together has been my life's journey, recognizing that this love that we have for fossil, fossil fuels and the greed that goes with it has been responsible for countless deaths, not just human life, um, but the earth itself. And, and fighting for, first of all, for justice as it relates to the damage that has been done you know, to communities, especially in relationship to their health, which means we need uh, health care for everyone, but also looking at the enormous cost that um, this pursuit of this energy via the fo fossil fuels route um, has done to these communities with, with climate, with the onset of climate change, which puts them in double jeopardy of um, harm. It, it has also been amazing to me that, you know, this struggle is global. You know, when we first began, we weren't thinking about the rest of the world. We were just thinking about uh, my fight in particular started in the Mississippi River Chemical Corridor. And then by uh, making a trip to the motherland, going to South Africa, I found out that Borden Chemicals that was destroying the aquifer in Norco, Louisiana, was actually shipping its mercury to South Africa. And we visited the particular community that was then being destroyed by the, by the mercury from, um, from the very plants that destroyed the aquifer in Louisiana. So at that point, the fight for for justice, climate justice became global. It was real for us. And all the work that I've done, it, it's never been just theoretical. I started out, you know, writing about it, but then through this work, I began to live it. So what does it mean to have a just and equitable energy future? Well, it certainly means that we are going to have to transition from fossil fuel um, to renewables, and it also means that the communities that have been harmed the most should be involved in this new economy. Now that's the fight. That is absolutely the fight. We're seeing right here in the city of New Orleans when we have more solar panels on houses uh, that are equally distributed by, by race and income, which means even poor people have have solar panels uh, on their homes and we're fighting. And now we see that we're fighting the energy corporation who wants to reduce the amount of money we get back um, because of, of their buying energy from us for the grid. And we see laws being passed all over to reduce that amount of money because energy wants to stay in control. They, they use as an excuse for lowering the amount of money we get by saying that we are robbing, it's not fair to customers who don't have solar panels. It's just really an amazing thing, but at every turn, as we try to try to um, develop something that's more equitable as it relates to energy and income, the 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 large energy complex comes up with with other things. The, the one thing that I, that I recently learned at a conference that I attended where a former general was present, and he was a Republican, but he basically said that our problem is that we have, there are basically three grids in this country that American citizens paid for with a deal cut by Congress. So all of the loopholes and all of the control that they have was actually given to them in the 40s to build these grids. And so now we're at their mercy. In California, if they decide to turn it off, they can turn it off. 
although it's our tax dollars that built these large grids. And what it means is that we have to have another conversation with them. And we need a new contract, you know, with, with these um, large energy producing corporations. The transition to renewable energy, I believe, would happen tomorrow if the different energy corporations owned it. If they owned it, we would move more swiftly, very swiftly. And I think it's all about greed and control. But we will not have an equitable energy future if these same corporations own all of the renewable energy and will make certain that other companies' new ideas are not allowed into the system. In the research that I've done, it seems that looking globally, you can find there are in place now ways for us to transition to a renewable energy um, consumption method in this country. It will cost a lot of money, but no more money than what we're already spending. But the will is not there because of the present structure, energy structuring that has already been done. I think COVID-19 may, in fact, be one of the things that can help us begin to do something different. If you don't have a job, you certainly can't pay your electric bill. And I would like to see these electric companies turning off uh, electricity all over the world because people can't pay the bill. That opens the door for other things to take the place of getting your electricity from the grid. I'm not a futurist, but I think this may be one of the pegs in the hole to really drive us more quickly towards changing our our habits, uh, our energy consumption methods. I see a lot of changes coming because of COVID. I don't know if I answered your question. I went on and on, but... Let's actually talk about that. This is the... 15th anniversary coming up of Hurricane Katrina. And we've been dealing with about a little over 15 weeks of the coronavirus, more, but this in general for when the lockdowns took place and people really began to see the death toll. You you sit at the epicenter of both in New Orleans, having gone through Katrina and now going through... COVID-19. I want to ask you, as you say, one of those those Think 100 real questions. In your opinion, between Katrina and COVID-19, which one is worse? For me, COVID-19 is worse than Katrina. It's worse in the sense that when the water's coming in, there was some real solutions to our problems. Whether we did all of them the way we should have or not, we knew what the solution was. And that was to clean up, rebuild, and move back home. And so everyone that was displaced who did not die in the numbers of deaths but COVID-19 around the world are scary, but in the United States in particular, it's unbelievable. And the fact that it's, that it's killing African-Americans more than anybody else makes it also really, really scary. Um, whereas Katrina, if, if you were white and you stayed home, uh, you drowned like anybody else around you. If you were if you were not able to get to get out, we know the thing was the 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 bottom line with Katrina had a lot to do with income and race because race and income are tied. But with COVID nineteen, the question we don't know what the solution is. Before Katrina happened, people could write they had all kinds of plans for getting us back and up and running and as if we didn't live here, but. Then, you know, individual families made their plans. We had people living in uh, uh, housing projects. 
um, new to fight for it, to demonstrate, to march, to reach your congressman, you know, uh, there was a solution. There was something that you could do. Where we are now, you know, we are not in control and we are being affected more now from COVID-19 than what we were from Katrina. And the fact that we are dying the way that we are really makes us feel really helpless. And if you can add a number of things to this. First of all, and I'll start with essential workers. New Orleans has the highest unemployment rate in the nation. And as a really easy answer to that, our economy is tourism, entertainment, hospitality. The majority of the people who live in this city work in those industries. Unlike other cities that have more diversity in their economy, we do not. So we have the highest unemployment rate in the country. The other thing is, just like other places, the essential workers, in fact, the ones in entertainment or restaurants, cashiers, whatever, are predominantly African-American in this city. And these essential workers, this partic these particular occupational groups, work in what we call high risk for, for obtaining the virus areas. They work directly with people, more so they come in close contact with people delivering packages um, at cashiers, in the pharmacy, in the grocery, as janitors, you name as cooks, in restaurants, and servers. And then you add to that, the PM 2.5, where we live, you know, the, the, on, the, on the real science side, not the social science side, we have something that's working against us. And that is because we live in areas that are more polluted and the research shows that we consume more polluted air than, than our white counterparts in general across the United States. It means that because of the, uh, the, the way that this virus works, and who we are, we would end up being affected more and having a higher mortality rate. So for you know those reasons and many others, I, I feel that this is worse. So when cities decide to open up their cities to workers, if you are a cashier, you can't say, no, I'm not coming back. Oh, well, no, you can't say that, but you don't get unemployment if you quit your job. So you're almost stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do I go to work, chance getting sick, or do I stay home to stay healthy and lose my job and have no money to feed my family? That is what is going on here, and it is devastating. I watch every day my people at bus stops because they've been pushed out of the city by Katrina with gentrification through gentrification, and they live out in the suburbs where I live, if you can call it a suburb, with hardly uh, any amenities that are needed to, to, to go back and forth to work. So they're at bus stops that don't run regularly, and they're shoulder to shoulder under the one little shelter that's there from the rain and the sun. Most of them don't even have on masks, and I think that the bus drivers should be passing out masks on buses. But it breaks my heart to see them there. I see them walking, baby strollers, everything going to the gas station to buy things that we need and walking back, no mask on. It's, it's heartbreaking. And so their chances of contracting the virus goes up again, even when they're home because of the way they have to come out in the places they have to go to buy food tend to be places that don't have the plexiglass in front of the counter, which is certainly to benefits the, the clerk more so than it benefits you behind the plexiglass and you don't have on a mask. You know, it's disturbing. We, I don't see our politicians really addressing you know, the root of the problem, New Orleans East, where I live, has the largest number of COVID patients. I don't see any special effort or exercises being done in New Orleans East as compared to the rest of the city 
recognizing that we have a bigger problem uh, than do other areas of the city. I've just not seen it. I will say that I believe that our governor is doing a great job. We are so lucky to have a democratic governor. I'm, I am perplexed in, in terms of how we make a change. Um, my hope is that we get a vaccine and unlike people who are saying the vaccine will be ready in 21, I won't be in line to get it. I'm not getting in line until a whole lot of other people much younger than me who don't look like me get it first. Everybody knows that, you know, if you know anything about science, this is a long process. There's no magic to it. And it's trial and error. And so I don't believe that a vaccine will be ready. This is just my opinion until 2022. So how do we survive until that time with cities reopening and most of the people who look like me are forced to go back to work and forced not even just by their bosses, but that because they need to feed their families. There's that pressure as well. So yes, I think COVID-19 is worse because we have so few answers in how we can move past this virus. And I really believe that COVID-19 is the first of many different pandemics that will be coming our way because of the impacts of climate change and everything that was told to us about the weather changes and what it produces, what it allows to grow, how uh, exotic animals move closer to us, getting our food chain, introducing us to the kinds of germs and viruses that, that we are unable to fight off. So, you know, when the scientists said it, I don't think people really believed it, but every prediction that they've made so far has come true. Everyone. Dr. Wright, what is the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice? Uh, the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice is a nonprofit organization that formed to build a capacity, African Americans in particular, to respond to environmental threats. Specifically, it focused on Cancer Alley, which at that time was releasing 800 million pounds of carcinogens into the air and water and soil, and had at that time a, a very high uh, cancer rate, which we now know is the highest in the nation, and seven of the top 10 cancers in the country. So we still lead the country in cancer. We lead the country in exposure um, of, of, to PM 2.5, uh, uh, toxic pollutants in particular. But what we knew was that African-Americans were being affected most and there was no leadership, no one speaking out for them and the people who were did not look like them. So our goal was to make certain that we build the capacity of these community members who lived in Cancer Alley to be able to have some impact on decision-making that work to their benefit in the reduction of pollutants uh, in the corridor. Uh, we started out, that's where we started. We were fighting chemical plants, in particular petrochemical plants. We were able over about a 13 year period, see the reduction of a pollution in the chemical corridor going from 800 million pounds, that's where it was in 84 and continued on to 280 some million pounds, which is still far too much for an 85 stretch of land. If you look at Houston, at Texas, their numbers are in the 200 million and Texas is a lot larger than Louisiana. And we're talking the majority of that pollution being in one little strip of land on the Mississippi between New Orleans and Baton Rouge. We were able to um, help communities to organize and formed 
oh, I guess 13, 14 concerned citizens for St. John Parish or concerned citizens for St. James Parish. We help them to organize and become a force to be reckoned with along the corridor. Uh, the Deep South Center embraces a concept that we call communiversity. Um, it, it is a concept that first and foremost values the input of community people. And we value it to the point that every grant that we have had to have a percentage of that money going back to community members who assisted us in the work, doing outreach, collecting data in the same manner that that money was distributed to researchers. So it, it just sets a stage of equality between researchers and community members who become community workers, community assistants, community outreach um, managers. All of these positions work is needed to bring about change, at least the kind of change that we're talking about that's hard, it's long, it, 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 it involves science, but it most of all in, involves boots on the ground. Uh, our focus from the very beginning was on education. We developed training modules, a little epidemiology, a little toxicology, but a whole lot of who, when, and where are the people who are supposed to be protecting you. And we conducted trainings in communities up and down the river for about three to four years. And out of that came some real leaders in the community like Margie Richards in Narco, who ended up being relocated and there many are, many more, fighting back Shintech in St. James Parish, Mrs. Moss and Ms. Roberts, both of whom died recently. They were elderly when we started and they both died in their late 80s. Ms. Roberts died more recently in her 90s. But they were warriors working uh, in the corridor. The Deep South Center also has a hazmat training program that actually evolved out of the movement because every time I would talk to communities, they would say, oh, Dr. Wright, we so appreciate everything that you're doing, you know, helping us to fight these chemical plants, you know, teaching us about the poisons and the health effects, you know, and all of that, she said. But, you know, our children don't have jobs. They're just standing around. Some of them didn't finish college. You know, you're helping us to clean up. Doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't mean a whole lot if we, we're living with families who can't thrive and don't, can't feed their families. And they were watching large remediation companies coming into their communities in different Superfund sites, uh, taking out millions of dollars and not one job for the people who live there. No money's going back into the communities that were being cleaned up. And out of that came an idea at the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences to begin training young people in these communities in hazmat so that they could benefit from the economic boom that was being made by some people uh, in cleaning up their communities. And that program has been in existence for 25 years. We have trained young men and women who live in environmental justice communities to be in HAZWOPER, as it's called, but also lead abatement, asbestos removal, basic construction, green construction. We're moving on. We, we're trying to stay current, so we expect to at sometime soon be also in the area of solar panels teaching them how to not just install but repair uh, solar panels. And we have changed lives with this program. Young men who told me, you know, Dr. Wright, I got to feed my family. But um, if I get a job, I'll stop selling dope. That's what they call it, stop selling dope. We've seen numerous young men and women do just that and land full-time jobs with benefits or they work like men in construction and they travel around the world from the West Indies um, when, um, when there's a hurricane or a tornado 
to up in uh, the northern states, New Jersey, New York, where the pay is twice double what we make down here in, in the right to work for nothing on no union states. And I'm very, very proud of that program. That has been a staple for us, as well as fighting every issue on the ground in New Orleans and then assisting communities throughout the Gulf Coast. We have a, a grant from the Kellogg Foundation, where we have been now working five states, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, and Texas, with community-based organizations building their capacity to fight climate change and build sustainable communities, giving them the resources that they need, some financial resources, but a whole lot of training so that they have become leaders in their communities. They're making a difference with their city council people. They're bringing about changes and regulations. It's been amazing to see the work that's taking place in all those communities with our assistance. And what's so great about this program is that it's a partnership with HBCUs. So we have in New Orleans, we partner with professors at Dillard. In Houston, we partnering with professors at Texas Southern. In Florida, we're at Florida A&M in Mobile. Um, we are with Alabama A&M. And so in, in the five states, every community now has a partnership with an HBCU and they have access to faculty and students who come in and assist them with all of their the research that they're doing, the petitions that they're writing. Um, we also have uh, legal assistance on our staff with an environmental lawyer who is phenomenal. Um, and we do a lot more. The HBCU Climate Change Conference, which grew out of our HBCU Climate uh, Change Consortium, has been in existence now. We, we had our seventh annual consortium. And this last year, we, we are postponing it for this year. Um, and we'll come back in uh, 21. We will not, I will not bring a large number of people together in one setting right now. I will not take that chance of even one child becoming infected by the virus because of some gathering that I pulled together. So we're not having this year, this year, but Rev, as you know, because you have participated in every one of them that we've had, it is a phenomenal experience with uh, young men and women from HBCU presenting their research, and it's interdisciplinary. So we've gone from extremely complicated science presentations on water and heat islands to the beautiful area of humanities with paintings that have been drawn, been drawn depicting the environment. So every discipline is covered. And we've included in that something that's called Generation Next, where we bring young people who have a what we call a poster contest on climate change. And they spend a whole day learning about climate change and how it's impacting people of color around the world. That's about maybe half of what we do. And then we do a lot of other things every day, responding to calls and fighting in the city of New Orleans in particular, fighting and the Energy Corporation. We're still fighting them. We haven't been winning and we knew we were fighting a giant, but the amount of corruption that exists is unbelievable. I, I told the city council that I didn't realize that we live in a company town, but we do. The only Fortune 500 company in the city of New Orleans is Entergy. And the response from government, including the legal, even the lawyers, judges, is in that way. They, they seem to be leaning on the side of Entergy. They bend and twist the law in ways that I have never seen before. But we live in a company town um, that is um, not progressive. It, it's sending us in a direction of buying a, a, a gas plant in a time when everything says people are using less electricity. The need for it is less, and this is one that we didn't really need 
They were, they said they needed it for peak times, but what they really needed for us to sell energy to the grid and make money off of us while we bear the burden of the pollution. So that's a fight that is continuing. We've been at it for almost two, two and a half years, um, and we're still fighting. That's just one fight here. We have at least one fight like that in, in all of the communities where we are working in the five states. We need an army. <laughs> well, and you, and you have done so much with the HBCUs and with uh, the consortium and with organizing those those young people. And you have this uh, love. I mean, you have a love for historical black colleges or universities. But you've Thank also you. but you've also been great on this call. So I know, listen, you've been holding back. You've been holding back and I know it's time to make yeah. TC and Mary and everybody else who knows the stories very, very happy. So let me just say this to everybody listening. Listen, uh, you're going to hear something. You know, all of y'all better not be snickering and laughing too loud because all y'all have folks who watch you grow up. But way before I became the president of the Hip Hop Caucus, way before I got to hip hop, uh, I know our producer here, Cross, and everybody else listening is going is snickering in the background. But way before I got into hip hop and knew all these folks like Diddy and Jay Z and them, I was just like anybody else. I was a little kid, and so <laughs> you met me, Doctor Wright, on a HBCU, and you met him through my parents. So people should know. Um, are also they they are doctors. There's Doctor Myrtle Yearwood and Dr. Lennox Yearwood Sr. So I'm going to start right there and let the folks, and I, and for those who don't know this, so you know you're going to hear something, I wear a baseball cap all the time as part of my hip-hop process, but you're going to find out that that my my the color of my hair is not black. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop there. You going to let me tell them? Yeah, go ahead and tell them. Go ahead and tell them. Okay, so I went to Grambling, uh, university and uh, Gramlin was known for sports and all of a sudden somebody hit the campus and the word was there's this guy from Trinidad and he's a fast runner he's on the track team that was Lynn's father they moved to Grambling um, Myrtle his mother and Lynn a married couple which was we had some married couples on campus but not many but Len and Myrtle were married, and Myrtle worked in the grocery store on campus, so everybody knew her. We knew that there was Len's wife, and I, my hat's off to her because she supported her family uh, while Len was in school. So Len was a phenomenal uh, track star. He was also brilliant. Um, I got a scholarship to the State University of New York at Buffalo, and so did Lynn. So after we left Grambling, we moved to, to Buffalo. But the point is, I remember when Myrtle was pregnant. I remember when Lynn was born. And when we moved to Buffalo, I was one of the aunties that changed his diaper and babysat him. And at that time, he just had so much energy. I just, I'd never seen a child. I would, we would be up at night, you know, adults trying to have fun and Len was standing against the wall, fighting sleep. And he's laughing because we told he, he was known as what we call in our community a nappy redhead, a brickhead is what we called it. He had the reddest hair that you could ever imagine with freckles in his face. And he's standing there with his eyes rolling back in his head, stomping, trying not to go to sleep. And that's when I, when I met him again. I hadn't seen Len in years. I hadn't seen Myrtle or his father, Lennox, in years. And I was on Dillard's campus, and they said, the hip-hop preacher, Lennox Yearwood. And I said, Lennox Yearwood? I looked at him, I said, oh, no, he's way too young. That's not, that's not my Len, right? So I get on the campus, and he's talking, and then he starts talking about how he was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I looked up again. I'm like, there could only be one Len born in Shreveport, Louisiana. And I began to look at his face again. I'm like, he looks like Myrtle. This got to be him. And sure enough, we met up once again 
on the campus of Dillard University, where I was working at the time. And what a delight it has been to reconnect with both his father and mother over the telephone. I haven't seen any, any of them yet. We're all getting up in age, but we still, we're moving along. So Len, I just wanna say to you, I'm just so proud of you and just so amazed at what God has done with your life and so excited that he's brought us back together again, at least this time, not changing diapers or babysitting. <laughs> Oh man! And Alice, I was gonna say, folks, you probably say, "Well, who is who is she talking? About? Is Len Rev? Yes, the Len she's talking about is Rev." Oh yeah, that's right. We call you Len. That's right. Len is Rev. That's right. So you got it. I was, and there was a brickhead. She said, "Brickhead nappy brickhead. boy." Nappy brickhead. That's what we call it. <laughs> that's certainly. That's certainly something that's in our community. That is. You know, where we call nappy brickheads, right? And that's so, <laughs> folks, folks, you heard it. I, yes, I have red hair. I, and I am. Yes, and, and I was like any other baby growing up. I was. So, so actually, that's important because it, it shows you that a lot of times for those who are listening and you have children who are wearing you out, <laughs> those children. <laughs> You were one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Those children could grow up to be activists. So a lot of y'all, yes. a lot of y'all have these kids who are running around. You who can't, man, they got super energy. Listen, that young girl or that young boy is what we need for the movement. Listen, down the yes. road. So man, no, thank you for that. Listen. I love you for that. Thank you for that story. And, you know, welcome, I guess I, 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 I want for you to kind of, you know, answer a couple of things for folks who hear this conversation. So I guess it's the one thing is, is with all that's going on with COVID and from back from climate change, the climate crisis, what makes you hopeful? Well, um, I'm always hopeful because of the past. You know, I, if we could make it through slavery, and I don't know if, if it's possible for us to imagine the pain and suffering that our ancestors went through, but we made it through that. And we made it through Jim Crow, and, and we're making it through your president, we're making it through him. Then I'm certain we can make it through this, because I also believe in science. <laughs> I believe that if we can send a man to the moon, it may take a while and a lot of us may be gone, but sooner or later we'll find a way to contain this virus. Um, what worries me is, you know, if we don't do something quickly, what will happen to our community? And that is what I believe uh, we should be focused on. It bothers me when I see young people walking around without masks and wearing a mask is not about you. It's about protecting people like me who are over 65. You could very well be a carrier. You know, you're out like you're, uh, it's a picnic or something I see young people, you know, and it really, really bothers me. And because I'm old school, I always speak to them. And when I, 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 I just ask the question, you know, why aren't you wearing a mask? And they'll say, oh, I've forgotten in the car. You know, and, and this is what young people do. They tend not to, a lot of it isn't intentional. It's just young people and they don't think. And I tell older people like me, if you see this, speak to it. Don't be rude, but speak to it. And I find that, you know, your tone is everything. When I say, I'm just curious, why, why, why don't you have on a mask? And you, you always find it. I'll say, well, I'm not. No, they say, well, it's in the car. Most times it's in the car, um, but we have to speak to it. So what makes me hopeful is that nature has somehow set it up where young people, because they are stronger, because they have better immune systems, um, 
although they die from it. They don't die from this disease in the numbers that older people do, especially Black people. So in that, I focus most of my work on most working with young people because I believe in the future. And what I tell old people is that if you don't train them and teach them the way, then how do you expect them to know the way? We have to talk more with young people. We have to do more mentoring. And we have to allow young people to be creative and bring ideas to the table. Um, and that is who I am. And I believe in the future because of young people. And in all the ways that I've seen young people who are involved in things that I disapprove of, I see just as many of them involved in things that are just phenomenal. HBCU Climate Change Conference has shown me that at a level that I did not even expect. Um, and I'm hopeful because I believe in the good Lord. I'm old school, you know, and I believe he sits high and looks low. And so he's looking. And in his time, you know, uh, things will change. But I also believe that he gave us a brain. You know, it's like that old joke, God, why didn't you save me? He said, well, I sent a boat. You wouldn't get in it. I sent a helicopter. I sent all of these things and you wouldn't take it. So, you know, you're meeting St. Peter. I believe that, you know, we have a brain that God gave us to use. And he's given us doctors and scientists that can help us overcome some of the things that happen naturally in this world and even those that aren't natural. Um, and because I believe in science and I believe in God and I believe in young people, I believe we will survive. I know that's right. So I just have two more, I just have two more questions really for you. And, and they're kind of on the same vein. One is the question is, cause I know you work with students, um, and particularly yeah. you speak to, you know, students who are particularly on black colleges on black college campuses, how, well, where do you see the climate movement in the next 20, 50 years? So if you can speak to these students now who are now within this moment of this double crisis of COVID and the climate crisis and everything else that they're dealing with, where do you see the climate movement? And I, and I say that also, just understand, with a backdrop of understanding that you've been meeting and talking and representing from the environmental justice groups and talking to large environmental organizations and trying to get folks to do what things to play fair and play nice in the sandbox. So knowing that backdrop, let's just understand that we know it hasn't been a, a crystal staircase. What do you see though? And be and I, and I'll, I'll be as honest and open as you can be with where do you see this climate movement in the next 20, 50 years? Well, here is where you're going to hear how hopeful I am. I really believe in the next 20 years, the climate movement will look a lot different from what it looks today. I believe in the next 20 years, we will have um, enacted laws. We will be transitioning from fossil fuel to renewables. And in the next 50 years, we won't need a climate movement because a new lifestyle as it relates to sustaining this earth will be in place. And let me tell you why I say that. I, I, I look at research, the, the millennials and Gen X, these generations, they are really different from us in large measure. In terms of their thinking, they're more open. They are very, very much into climate change and they're changing their eating habits. They're changing some of their occupations. They are um, they're thinking forward in a way that we've never done before and in large numbers. And I feel the same way, for example, about climate as I feel about gun control. All of these things that we're fighting now, this generation, the millennials, the Gen X, they're living it. You know, so they're going to schools where people are being shot. They're living through tornadoes. They don't even know what real seasons look like. You know, they no longer have, like I had, winter, fall, spring, and summer. Even in Louisiana, we had all of those seasons. The temperatures were just a bit different from other places. 
children born in the 80s, since the 80s, I think it was, don't know seasons because we no longer have it. And they are recognizing this and they're learning more about it in school and they will be the change makers. When millennials and, and Gen Xers have children, it's time to send them to school. They'll think about gun laws. They'll think about what they went through and the thought of sending your child to school not knowing if they will come home. I believe we'll have the strongest gun laws we've ever had before. I really do. I think I see change uh, coming, maybe not in my lifetime, but I do see it coming and it's going to come from young people. And that is why it is so important for us to stay engaged with them and to make certain that they are educated and understand science, the science of climate change and the politics of climate change and the economics related to climate change, all of which are working together to stop us from doing what everybody knows we should do. I am positive in the same way that I never thought I would live to see a Black president. Because if we don't, we won't be here. <laughs> I mean, like, to, you know, we, we would be moving towards extinction. And thinking about that, just think about the, the hurricane season coming. People having to crowd together during COVID. You know, trying to find a way to keep people who are running for their lives away from one another because of COVID. This is crazy. And I believe that young people will see it that way and begin uh, living differently and doing things differently. Now, you're always going to have that 10% or 20. And right now, I think with, with Trump, it's about 32% of the population. They say it's 29, between 29 and 32%. You'll always have a percentage that, you know, won't comply, don't believe, will fight you. But I believe that the good will win out as we move forward because of life experiences. I, I agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you. Well, this is my last question, and this is important, I guess, for those who understand culture. And so um, uh, when you think uh, about culture... Um, and getting ready to get fired up. Um, what song, poem, or artwork gets you inspired to do this work? Believe it or not, Lift Every Voice and Sing is still one of my favorite songs. I think it's the most beautiful song. It brings tears to my eyes uh, because I was a movement person, if you know what I mean, of the 60s. But I like, uh, and you might think I'm just saying this, but Marvin Gaye was the first album that I ever bought as an adult. And what's going on, every time I hear it, it's just so, and this was during my college days. And I've been out of high school 50 years. So, you know, but that song is still so real and it really um, stirs inside of my soul. I was trying to think of what song would it get me revved up? It, for me, uh, it was a song back in the day that was calling, that was taught us like, move on up. Curtis Mayfield, that's right. The Curtis Mayfield song. We used to love that song back in the day. Moving on up. And I think we are still moving on up. But you know, I'm going to end with this. Without reparations, we'll always be just moving on up. I'm ready to get there. I know that's right. We need a big push to get there, and that's reparation. Amen to that. I'll end with that. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Wright. You have, you have inspired, you have uplifted, and you've embarrassed me, which is all good. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, all in love. It's, it's all in, it is all in, in love, love and all part of the movement. <laughs> Man, uh, if folks want to, if folks want we need folks. Folks want to support um, the center or they want to find you, how do they do that? Well, they can go to our website at www.dscej.org. You can learn uh, everything about us, and there is a donate button. On our site, if you want to contribute, we would appreciate it. But thank you again, Rev, for um, allowing me to be on your program and have this extended conversation with you about some of my thoughts and some of the work that we're doing. And 
once again, you know, on a personal, I'm just so proud of you and just amazed, you know, at where God has brought you and you are a blessing to our people and to our movement. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people.